Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. Today, we're going to pick up our occasional conversations about climate storytelling and communication and focus on the role of humor in talking about the climate crisis. My guest today, Dr. Aaron Sachs, says that dark comedy can be an essential tool for turning despair into resilience, hope, solidarity, and activism. His new book, Stay Cool, Why Dark Comedy Matters in the Fight Against Climate Change, offers a laugh-out-loud tour of historical and contemporary examples of humor that inspire adaptation and change. We'll talk about many of these examples today while highlighting what Sachs says we can learn from African-American and Jewish traditions of gallows humor in particular. Aaron Sachs is a professor of history and American studies at Cornell University, where he teaches environmental history. His 2022 book, Up from the Depths, Herman Melville, Lewis Mumford, and Rediscovery in Dark Times, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Biography. Today, we're going to be talking about his new book, Stay Cool, Why Dark Comedy Matters in the Fight Against Climate Change. Welcome to A Public Affair, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for author Aaron Sachs, an observation about the political power of comedy, or even a climate joke to share, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. So, Aaron, it's great to have you with us, and I really enjoyed the book, and it gave me a lot to think about in terms of how I communicate uh, about climate here on this show and, and other places as well as a writer and a teacher. Thanks. Um, and your book starts off very compellingly with a personal story about what drew you into thinking about this. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the story of this book's origins? Sure. I mean, every every book has a number of different origin stories, but the the simplest and most straightforward one for this is is just that I was pretty depressed and demoralized, um, uh, specifically about climate change and. Uh, the the political environment uh, here in the United States. Um, I also had some personal things I was going through. I'm I'm middle aged, and like many middle aged people, uh, I had some elder care issues um, as well as child care issues happening simultaneously. That thus thus the term sandwich uh, generation. Um, and uh, and it it was it was hard. Um, I was I was often feeling pretty despairing, and um, and I found that one of the best things I could do for myself to just sort of build up my own ability to persevere um, was to engage with comedy. It just it just sort of immediately improved my mood, gave me a little bit of distance from what I was going through and what I was feeling. Um, 
and uh, and then I started thinking, you know, as as I was connecting my my sort of personal situation with broader politics, um, you know, comedy is something that environmentalists have never really tried. <laughs> um, so why not give it a shot? Why not why not do things a little bit differently? Why not you know upset the sort of normal doom and gloom narrative um, that's been that's that's become so familiar uh, with environmentalists and and so dreaded often by the people environmentalists talk to. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I could go on from there, but 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 that's the basic idea, you know. I I, I sort of felt like why not investigate the history of comedy um, to see about a, a kind of political and spiritual morale boost um, for for especially for environmentalists. Yeah, that comes through loud and clear in the book that it's a search for the possibilities of comedy yeah. in this new context by, as you said, um, excavating the history of how comedy has helped people deal with difficult times, but also uh, thinking about the relevance of those possibilities in the present. And I'm going to stick with your personal story for a minute because you also include in the prologue uh, that you developed this climate change comedy hour um, mm. and provoked a, a number of positive responses um, when you performed this or shared this. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, it was really interesting because um, I think I, I, I um, just sort of constitutionally tend to be um, mostly serious when it comes to my professional work. You know, like I in 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 casual convert. I'm I'm also a fairly shy person. Um, in in conversation with people I'm comfortable with, I, I definitely have a sense of humor. But um, but you know, just as as a as a kind of um, background for this, my uh, the book that I wrote uh, and published in the early 2010. I guess it came out in 2013. Um, was a book that was largely about death and the environment, um, and it was it was pretty serious and sober. And I, I think we just had a uh, talks about that book go. and um, getting some really really nice responses uh, to to the sort of you know to to my attempt to be honest about um, facing death and facing environmental limits. Um, and that felt really good. But, um, but it was, you know, very, very intriguing to me to try a different mood, a different affect altogether. Um, because even though it's good, it's good to move people, it's good to be connected about serious, difficult topics. Um, with climate change in particular, I felt like the seriousness had just kind of run its course and people were feeling so overwhelmed um, that it was it was just hard to get activated. And so, you know, one of the great things about comedy is just it's unpredictable. It's it's surprising. Um, and I thought, OK, I'll try this out with just a couple of quick talks. And the, the very the very first one I did was to mostly a group of undergraduate students. And I was just stunned at how excited they were. Like, I thought, OK, this is this is potentially weird. 
I could, you know, like you, it comedy is very risky. It, it, it hits differently for different people when they're in different moods, you know, it can easily offend people. I, I, in my own mind, I imagined people coming up to me and being like, how dare you take this so lightly? This is, you know, this is our most serious ex ex existential crisis um, since the atomic, you, you know, I, I just like, I was worried about it. I was nervous about it. And the students seemed to love it. I really, I felt like I had never gotten <clears throat> so much sort of enthusiasm from, uh, from a talk that I had given before. It really seemed activating for people, you know, like students came up to me and said, Hey, would you, I have this other group on campus. Would you talk to them in this same way? Because I think it'll be really refreshing. And Anyway, the, I, I've been so grateful for young people in general. Um, as, a, as a professor, I get to engage with, with young people a lot, and they just they have a great kind of energy. And I feel like the, the generation that's kind of up and coming right now um, has really gotten activated in, you know, for, for, uh, along all kinds of lines, political lines, social justice lines, racial lines. Um, it's, it's really interesting. And, you know, I would say different from when I started my career as a professor almost 20 years ago now, when students struck me as not that engaged, to be totally honest. Um, so that's exciting. And I was, I was just really grateful for, for that boost. And, and that kind of uh, convinced me to keep going with this project. Would you say that you discovered or tapped into a hunger for a different approach to talking about climate and how people feel about it? Definitely. I mean, I, I, I feel like this current generation um, is is really split in their own, um, you know, like sometimes in their own souls, I would say, you know, between being really active and energized and really upset and angry and deflated, um, you know, and, and, and with climate change, they have grown up on a steady diet of doom and gloom and not, and, and the thing is not just doom and gloom, but terror. Um, and uh, it's just, you know, it's a lot to deal with for, for someone of any age, but I think, for young people um, kind of coming into their own college age, figuring out how they want to be in the world, what they want to do in the world. Um, yeah. I felt, I felt like a lot of them were telling me we need, we, you know, it, it's, it's not that the, the information about what's happening now is wrong. Um, but it's that we just need, different ways of talking about it we need we need a we need a wide toolkit we need we need like a big quiver of different arrows that we can put into our bows to to just try to manage this absolutely like it's another uh existential tool for people yeah. to navigate this crisis with and as you said the the kind of constant barrage of difficult news we're going to dig into how you talk in great detail in the book uh, about historical examples of comedy as a tool for dealing with difficulty. But I want to reintroduce you first. I'm talking today with Dr. Aaron Sachs, a historian, and he has a new book out called Stay Cool, Why Dark Comedy Matters in the Fight Against Climate Change. My name is Douglas Haynes, and you're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM 
Madison. We'd love to hear from you listening today. If you'd like to join the conversation about climate and humor, share a climate joke, share a perspective on how humor helps, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook. So let's dive into the book and, and how you set it up a little bit. Aaron, you uh, talk about in, in the prologue uh, about how Dante's Divine Comedy of all uh, <laughs> works of literature inspired you to think about the uses of comedy. And it gave you some defining structural characteristics for this book and purgatory, excuse me, in particular in your book's prologue, you call the book a guide to reframing purgatory. You say mm -hmm. history suggests that purgatory is basically what humans have been trying to get used to since time immemorial. So tell us a little bit more, first of all, about what you mean by that. And then uh, how thinking about purgatory and the inferno helped you conceptualize this whole project. Yeah, so, you know, when you're thinking about the the history of comedy in the Western world, you sort of inevitably run up against Dante's Divine Comedy, which, of course, is not a comedy in the, in the sense that we usually use the word. Um, for, for Dante back then in the 14th century, it was, it was much more a sense of, you know, comedy as the world, um, in a kind of balance or harmony. Um, so in Dante's divine comedy, you know, there, there are three books. Um, oops. It seems like I'm no longer connected. Yeah. Nope. We've got you. Oh, okay. oh, good. Yep. Okay, sorry. Um, so Dante's Divine Comedy has first Inferno, the most famous part of the book, then Purgatory, and then Paradise. And um, I was I was reading Dante and thinking about Dante and the meaning of comedy, and um, and I thought this would be a great way of framing my book. Except I'm gonna not include the Paradise part. <laughs> um, because uh, you know it's it's a different. I'm I'm dealing with a different form of comedy, and um, and I thought instead of divine comedy, I'll 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 think of this as decline comedy, uh, because of this. Now I think we did in fact lose you for a second. Yep, we've lost Aaron. He's talking about decline comedy. And we're talking about uh, how comedy is relevant to the climate crisis and talking about the climate crisis here on A Public Affair. We're talking about Aaron Sachs' new book, Stay Cool, Why Dark Comedy Matters in the Fight Against Climate Change. Feel free to give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you'd like to join the conversation. I think we have Aaron back now. Hi, sorry about that. Yeah, don't worry. I'm not sure. I'm not sure when I got lost. <laughs> but, you were uh, just yeah. talking about setting up uh, the book as decline comedy rather than divine comedy. Okay, right. So, um, so I stole Dante's uh, structure for my book. Um, I do. I do have. He's got three books: Inferno, Purgatory, and Paradise. Um, for me, I since since it's decline comedy instead of divine comedy, I've got Inferno, Purgatory, and Inferno Two even hotter. Um, and the largest chapter of my book is definitely Purgatory, as as you referred to, because because I really feel like the um, 
this is this is a useful framework for thinking about what the human condition really is. Um, you know, here 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 on Earth, it's never it's never been a paradise. Like we you know we we like to tell a certain kind of story about especially about climate change, about how the world used to be perfect and we screwed it up. Um, and I, I I really think that's that's kind of misleading or even dangerous. Um, yes, we have screwed it up for sure, but it's important to remember that human life and society building has always been really, really hard, really, really fraught, um, really terrible for many people, actually, you know, like the, the, the paradise, the quote unquote paradise of this planet has never really been divided up equally. Um, and, um, so anyway, yeah, the the idea is not to try to um, reestablish some kind of quote unquote paradise, but to sort of accept the idea that the human condition is purgatorial um, and we should make it as just and as equal and as decent uh, for everybody as absolutely possible. Um, that's a, that's a really hard proposition, of course. Um, but I, but I do think it's kind of a better proposition than trying to aspire to anything along the lines of paradise. We'll stick with the, the humor of purgatory here in a minute and look at some of the examples you have in the book. But first of all, we have a caller on the line, Doug from Sun okay. Prairie. Uh, you have a question for us. You're on a public affair. Hello. Uh, I have more of a comment. Um, a couple of them. One is uh, I find it really funny when the progressive left attempts to be funny because <laughs> it's generally not funny. But anyways, uh, I the other thing I was curious about is what if Mother Nature plays the cosmic joke on us and slams the whole thing in reverse and we go into another ice age? So we have a, a sort of rhetorical question there, Aaron. Um, do, do you want to approach that? Do you have an approach for that you want to share? Thank you, Doug, for the call. Um, I I think actually the I I, I understand the comments about uh, the progressive left not being terribly funny, but I but I actually think leftists are getting way better at comedy. Um, you know, especially in in recent years. Um, you've got comedian, you know, m many, many comedians, uh, I would say are on the political left and they're, they've learned from, you know, in, in, in many ways from the history of comedy, how to be, uh, really, really funny and political at the same time. One of my favorite comedians ever, uh, was the, the great African-American comedian and civil rights activist, Dick Gregory. Um, he, he sort of made his reputation as a comedian in uh, the early 1960s. Um, but that was also right when the civil rights movement was ramping up. And um, and he he basically taught the civil rights movement how to be funny. And that was really, really helpful to the civil rights movement. They were able to reach a lot more people that way. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, I see lots of people following in those footsteps these days. So I'm, I'm hopeful for leftist comedy. And one of the characteristics of Dick Gregory that you talk about and that uh, tradition that you just 
described is the uh, usefulness of self-directed humor or making fun of mm-hmm. oneself. Um, and that forms a key part of what you say people concerned about climate or ecological issues more broadly can learn from uh, these traditions. And we'll talk about the African-American tradition more in a minute. But uh, talk a little bit more about this usefulness of self-directed humor. Yeah, thanks so much for bringing that up, because I do think that's one of the most important strategies that environmentalists can uh, adopt under these sort of uh, difficult circumstances. Um, One of the so the history of comedy is is fascinating in many different ways. But one one of the things that that I learned in really looking into this is that um, when American comedy got really good, like really started to develop a strong tradition, especially in in stand-up comedy. It was thanks to um, this new idea of directing the comedy at yourself first. Um, And, uh, you know, one of the one of the greatest at this was a contemporary of Dick Gregory named Phyllis Diller. Um, an absolutely phenomenal comedian in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, she, she said, I start with the denigration of myself and then I can go on to denigrating everybody else. <laughs> it's, and it's just, it's a, it's a great observation because once you point that comedic lens at yourself, you're just, you're much more relatable. You're, you're human, you're vulnerable, um, and it just opens up space in the conversation that you're having. Um, you know, in, in, in the case of environmentalists and climate change, um, you, can, you can point that satirical lens then at fossil fuel companies, for instance. Um, but even if, you're not gonna, if you, even if you're not gonna go in the satirical direction, even if you're just trying to reach out to an audience who may or may not be supportive, you're not, you're not sure you're trying to you're trying to sort of get them um, activated and energized. If you can start out by making fun of yourself and saying, yeah, you know, like I'm um, I've been an environmentalist for a long time. So I've, I've gotten really good at uh, making people feel guilty about uh, every every decision that they make, um, then, you know, it. it it just it it puts you in a position to really connect in a different way. It's it's in, instead of saying like, I know what's right and you have been screwing up. You can say, look, I've been screwing up for a long time myself. Let's try to all get in this together um, and and do better as a community, as a group um, where we're all on an equal level. Uh, so I think it it can be a really powerful tool in in many different ways. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with author Aaron Sachs about his new book, Stay Cool, Why Dark Comedy Matters in the Fight Against Climate Change. If you'd like to join the conversation, have a question for my guest, or share a perspective on climate and comedy, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook. 
So, Aaron, I'd like to continue with uh, the core of your book, where you really focus on uh, prominent examples of black humor from African-American and Jewish traditions of gallows humor. And we'll start, Mm. first of all, talking about um, this notion of black humor, and then we'll hear an example in a minute of what you're talking about. But first of all, tell us about the lineage of this term black humor, and you talk at great length about Andre Breton's anthology of black humor as well. So give us some context before we dive in here. Yeah, so this is a, a subset of comedy, um, dark comedy, sometimes called black humor, black comedy, um, not to be confused with African-American comedy and humor, um, although African-American comedy is often dark or black, uh, as it were. Um, and yeah, it's it's been around for a really long time, but it didn't really start to get characterized or categorized, you could say, uh, until um, the the sort of early to mid 20th century. You referred to uh, André Breton, the French uh, surrealist poet, um, who started collecting examples of black comedy, and you know he had a, an anthology all ready to go right when the Nazis invaded Paris and took over France uh, in 1940. And that turned out not to be a really good time to, uh, to publish this kind of um, anthology. Although, you know, I, I hope we'll, we'll talk a little bit later in this conversation about World War II uh, comedy, uh, of which there was a lot, surprisingly. Um, but anyway, um, Breton um, was, was, really, really interested in trying to trace this as a, a tradition. And um, and what I love about his anthology is he goes all the way back uh, to um, the 18th century and picks up Jonathan Swift, for instance, writing about the terrible, uh, one, one of the terrible Irish famines. Um, and uh, And Swift has this famous essay called A Modest Proposal, where he says, well, it'd be really easy to, to deal with this famine um, if poor people just sold their infants to the wealthy. Um, it's a win-win because then the poor have more money to, to feed the rest of their families and, um, and the wealthy have uh, more food to eat. You know, it's, it, 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 cannibalism is a, is a really good solution to all kinds of social and environmental problems, it turns out. Um, but anyway, a great, great sort of darkly comic satirical essay just pointing out the, the, the sort of injustice of um, a famine in which wealthy people were, were actually pretty much fine. And if you were poor, that's when your life was in danger. Um, so uh, so anyway you know, there, there are these, um, these old, old examples of dark comedy. And, um, and I, I, I go even further back than, uh, than Breton did in some of my examples. But the basic idea is, if you're in a difficult spot, um, then uh, having a sense of humor about it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a way of, fully acknowledging the darkness like this is bad we're 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 in a bad situation and and it would be wrong to to sort of cover that up and pretend that everything is okay it would be politically unacceptable to do that um spiritually unacceptable to do that but 
let's acknowledge it in a way that actually sort of gives us a little bit of hope and energy um, about trying to make something happen, about, you know, like changing uh, where we're at and, um, and getting through it with more resilience, perseverance, um, and, you know, hopefully sort of political activism along with it. And we're going to pick up uh, on that note right there with the ways that comedy can both uh, draw attention to injustice, but prompt activism or attention in new ways with the example that you lead with in your purgatory chapter, um, perpetually Mm. improvising on the edge of the abyss. You lead with uh, Chris Rock at the 2016 Oscars. So we're going to listen to a clip of this and we'll talk about that example and what it illustrates for you about African-American traditions of gallows humor. And then we'll talk about those World War II examples a little bit as well. But let's go to Chris Rock first at the 2016 Oscars. And just for folks listening on the podcast, uh, you won't be able to hear this clip, but we will put the link up for you in the show notes. So there's Chris Rock at the 2016 Oscars. The context is uh, sort of a... Uh, black mobilization around boycotting discussions about boycotting the Oscars for the lack of black nominees. Um, what did you see in that clip, Aaron Zacks, that really uh, stuck out to you as exemplary of this tradition? Right. So 2016, it was just two years after uh, the killing of Michael Fergus, um, uh, uh, the the the. Um, the killing in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, um, Michael Brown, sorry, um, and the and the, and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. So, the, so that was the context. Um, everybody was thinking about that with regard to um, the, the the sort of potential boycott of the Oscars, um, and you know, a number of. Uh, really prominent African-American celebrities uh, were saying that Chris Rock should not do his hosting gig, should step down um, as a as a form of protest about the the lack of black nominees. And so I found it really, really interesting that Chris Rock said, no, what I'm going to do is actually go on the show and make jokes um, about this whole situation. Um, and you know, the, the clip that you played was great, but you, but you actually didn't get to the really, really darkly comic part of it. Um, and, uh, I hope it's okay for me to say it on the air, but you know, then, he, then, then he, he kind of doubles down on what he's saying. And, you know, he says the, uh, the reason that, black folks were not protesting the Oscars in the 1960s is that they were too busy getting raped and lynched. Um, And uh, that's very, very dark, but it's real. And, um, and, and the, you know, sometimes as a comedian, you don't necessarily want raucous, silly laughter. You want uncomfortable laughter. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what he got at the Oscars and, and people really were paying attention at that moment. Um, and he, he kept going. I won't, I, I, I won't keep quoting, but, um, but you know, he got, he got deeper and deeper into, uh, into that darkness. And, and, you know, it was, he was making fun of everybody. He was, he was like, you know, uh, Spike Lee, 
you, you know, you, you were, you were call you basically, you were, you were calling on me to step down. You wanted to boycott the Oscars, but like, you know, fine. That's it's, it's, it's bad that there were no African-American nominees, but, but there are actually more important issues that we need to talk about as an, Af as, as a community. And, um, and I'm going to use the Oscars to get at those issues um, with jokes. Uh, so I was just really, really impressed at uh, at the way that um, somebody like Chris Rock can can so sort of deftly be comedic and political at the same time and um, and and deal head on with the most difficult issues that society is facing. Um, and I was watching that Oscars uh, on TV and. Um, and 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 thinking to myself, you know, like we need environmentalists to make this kind of um, comedy about climate change because, yeah, it's really dark. It's really serious. It's overwhelming. It's unjust. Um, but uh, but, you know, like it kind of helps uh, to to laugh at it, to to sort of gain some purchase on it. Um, and I don't and I don't think. This uh, this was just because of Chris Rock's jokes, but I but I would like to note that at the very next Oscars the next year there were a whole bunch of African nominees and wins. Um, so uh, you know, I think it had some effect. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll talk later about another example of a, a comedy having some effect. But uh, we have uh, another caller on the line, Sarah, with a comment or question about Jewish humor. And that'll lead us into the other big tradition that you dive into in the middle of the book. Go ahead, Sarah, you're on a public affair. Thank you. Uh, my husband was Jewish and he told jokes that uh, made fun of Jewish people and people didn't like it. Uh <laughs> So I wonder if you have a joke about um, the problem of um, the climate and Jewish humor. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Aaron. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 very tricky, right, with comedy because, um, like I said before, it there it it just hits differently for different people, and they're always going to be people who um, don't like certain aspects of your comedy. You know, like I, I've, I've mentioned before that um, there were a lot of jokes during World War II, and that includes jokes that people told inside concentration camps, as, as unbelievable as that might sound. Um, it's really true, and it's really important to note that as a kind of survival mechanism, not just not just a coping mechanism, but a survival mechanism. You know, there was, and, and this is very well documented. Um, I looked at uh, like a lot of documentation of this that scholars have done. You know, there was a group of friends in Treblinka who used to say to each other, "Hey, don't eat too much uh, because we're the ones who are going to have to carry your body out of here." Um, and that's that's a pretty dark joke, given that. Of course, there was no way to eat too much in Treblinka because they got hardly any food at all. Um, but it was just a way of saying like, hey, we're in this together. Take a breath. Um, you know, in, in a sense, we've got each other's backs um, and we have to remember that we are human beings. The most important thing, you know, laughing is a good way of, of being human, uh, reminding yourself that uh, that you're still a human being, no matter how you're being treated. 
Um, and hopefully that can help you survive into a time when um, you're being treated with more justice and, uh, and consideration. Um, but I have, you know, uh, there, there are a lot more Jewish, Jewish jokes that, that we could talk about. I don't, I don't know if, if you want to, you have a, no, a, give us, give us another example. And then we'll move into, to thinking about the ways that we can translate comedy about racial and ethnic injustice into the, uh, challenges and possibilities for climate change. But yeah, another example would be sure. a great jumping off point. So um, a, a historical joke that is both a Jewish joke and a climate joke in a way um, comes from the 1930s. Um, lots of people probably remember that the we had the Dust Bowl here in the United States in the 1930s, but um, that was it was actually a, a kind of international climate anomaly. Um, and many other places suffered drought in those years, including Germany. And um, so this joke dates from the mid 1930s, right when the Nazis were rising in power in Germany and um, and sending out officials in, in all parts of the country. Um, and there was a, con a, a Jewish congregation in uh, southern Germany where um, they were really suffering from the drought. Uh, their crops were failing and uh, the rabbi got his congregation together and said, look, I know it's desperate times, so we're going to adopt desperate measures. We're going to invite the local Nazi official to come to Shabbat services this week. And of course, the congregation was absolutely appalled. They couldn't believe, like, what, what are you doing? Like, why would you do that? That's a horrible idea. And the rabbi says, listen, maybe if we make God angry enough, he'll send another flood. Hmm. Um, so uh, so that was one way of coping with uh, a difficult uh, situation, both in, in the sort of <laughs> political and climate realms uh, back in the 1930s. And it takes uh, sort of known stories in the tradition and refreshes mm -hmm. them for the current circumstance, right? The, the exactly. flood story, obviously. And like you said, builds this sense of community or solidarity within uh, the joke, um, which is, of course... Uh, something that we need to do these days as well, mm. facing what we're facing is build a sense of community and refresh our traditions to engage in new ways with what we're facing. Um, you have some great examples in the book of comics uh, or comic projects that are doing that today. And that's where we'll spend, I think, most of the rest of our time here in your last chapter of the book, you talk about this rising tide of environmental comedy. And you say there's an effort to correct what has been the relative humorlessness of the environmental movement for a long time. And one of those examples is from the well-known group the Yes Men. And I think we'll go ahead and and hear that now. Again, folks listening on the podcast will post the link for you. But this is the Yes Men um, in New York City. Uh, do you remember the year, Aaron? Uh, I think it's 2016, but I'm not positive. 2015 or 2016. That sounds right. Um, and uh, they are posing as the uh, Shell Oil just to give folks a little context. And they are have a, a snow cone stand in New York City. And they are saying that they are selling a piece of Arctic, making a piece of Arctic ice in uh, into snow cones as a way to, to celebrate that they're making the future sweeter by drilling in the Arctic. Here's that clip from the Yes Men. 
That's the Yes Men in New York City uh, posing as Shell Oil, trying to uh, get the public interested in the impacts of drilling for oil in the Arctic. Uh, Tell us more about why you chose that example, Aaron, and what it reveals to you about the possibilities of climate humor. Well, for one thing, it it actually helped get Shell to give up their drilling operations um, up there in the Arctic. So uh, it was it was actually quite effective. But but I just you know it's like I just love the idea of a satirical snow cone cart. It's just it's just really silly, <laughs> um, and uh, and it gets people thinking in uh, in a in a fun way in, instead of shaming them or terrifying them it, it it allows them to to think politically while while also just sort of grinning um and the yes men are just fantastic at that i'll, I'll share one other quick anecdote of the yes men that 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 i also really appreciate um back in around 2011 or 2012, I started having students at Cornell talk to me about um, getting Cornell to divest from fossil fuels, that divest their endowment from fossil fuels. And I thought it was a great idea. I had been involved back when I was in college in the divestment campaign regarding South Africa to try to end, uh, to put pressure on the apartheid regime. and you know get get companies uh to to pull out of south africa and so yeah i thought this is great let's let's get colleges and universities um to pull their money out of fossil fuels um but it really it didn't go anywhere for the first few years it was really stuck the you know college college presidents across the country just kind of laughed us out of the room and and said that's ridiculous. Or it would it would hurt our endowments too much. Other people would just buy up the same fossil fuel stocks. It wouldn't ma- it wouldn't mean anything. It wouldn't matter. Um, so anyway, one of the one of the yes men, um, the the really the the leader of the yes men, whose stage name is Igor Vamos, happens to be a graduate of Reed College in Portland, Oregon, and they invited him there to do a commencement speech. Um, and in the speech, you know, with with all of the the, the 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 graduating seniors and their families all uh, gathered there. He got up and said, "You know, I had breakfast with the president of Reed College today, and was really really delighted to learn that Reed is going to divest uh, from fossil fuels completely." And huge standing of everybody in the crowd rose up, gave him a standing ovation. They were thrilled, and and there was there was video of this, and you can see the video. Uh, the camera going over to the president of Reed College, who who is looking completely stunned, and um, and you know the whole thing was a prank. He just Igor Vamos just made it up, um, but it was a way of bringing pu- publicity and pressure to colleges, you know, because it was also captured on film what a positive response he got from that announcement. Um, and um, and anyway, just a few years later, um, colleges and universities, including my own Cornell, have wound up divesting from fossil fuels. Uh, it's really it's been a it's been a huge uh, movement and and really, really successful across the country. And and I think comedy helped. 
It's a great example of how comedy can be prescient and prophetic often mm-hmm. as well, right? As you said, this has become uh, normalized now. What what only a little more than a decade ago seemed like a big joke, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's an awesome example. And uh, our producer, Jade, is actually sharing that uh, she was there for that moment uh, with the Yes oh, Men awesome. at Reed College. Yeah, we'll have to hear about it more. But we have a caller on the line here on a public affair. Scott, you have a joke for us? Well, I have a comment, uh, I guess, the audience, and you have to decide how funny it is. Um, you spoke about the Yes Men previously in their, um, you know, comic form of protest. I've heard that uh, the snowmen of America are organizing a mass protest because they're facing an existential threat with climate change. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thanks for that, Scott. Aaron, have you heard that one? Um, I have, but, uh, but, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of climate related jokes. So, um, it's still, it's still, a, it's a, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a classic at this point. I love it. You're listening to a public affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes and I'm talking today with author Aaron Sachs about his new book, stay cool. Why dark comedy matters in the fight against climate change. There's still a few minutes to give us a call. If you'd like to join the conversation, it's 608-256-2001, extension 9. I'm going to have us go to one more uh, wonderful example, at least part of it here, that uh, you spent some time discussing towards the end of the book. And this is The Weather Girl Goes Rogue. And before we go to that, Mm. Aaron, I think it'd be helpful if you gave us a little context on the project that this uh, comedic effort is a part of. Um, are you actually going to play a clip of? Yeah, we're going to play a short okay, clip. Great. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so there are some wonderful scholars and activists at the University of Colorado Boulder who have started this thing they call Inside the Greenhouse. It's a website, um, but it's also just a kind of broader project. Um, and one of the things they do is uh, to sponsor a um, comedic climate change video contest. And you have to, they've been doing this for, um, since I think 2016. And um, you just submit a three minute video uh, that uses comedy to to talk about climate change. And I think the Rogue Weather Girl was the very first winner maybe of of this contest in 2016. Um, But they also replayed this video for one of the shows. <clears throat> and, and so uh, Inside the Greenhouse also sponsors uh, a kind of end of the academic year uh, event where they have stand up and improv and they show some of the videos, say they show the winning videos. Um, during the pandemic, they couldn't do a live show um, and they, they, they still managed to do a very creative show. And I think they played some of the old winners, including um, this one. Uh, anyway, it's, it's uh, you, you'll hear it's, um, it's about a, a young uh, person who announces the weather on TV um, who has uh, a more realistic take on climate change. Yeah, we'll go to that. And again, sorry, podcast listeners, you can find the uh, clip linked to you on the notes. This is what's happening. Another great example of the way comedy can help us reframe language, reframe how we talk about issues. That's the weather girl 
goes rogue. Uh, anything you want to draw out there for us as we wrap up, Aaron, about what uh, that exemplifies for you and what we need to be doing more of? Sure. I mean, I, I think it's just it's so cathartic sometimes to hear somebody say out loud that we're in an inescapable death spiral because <laughs> that's that's how we all feel. And, and uh, we we often think in those terms. But if the person says it in a comedic context, in a, in a you know, in 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 the way that the rogue weather girl says it, then, you know, it, it it's it's this sort of validation um but it's it's also lighthearted and and you can you can sort of say like okay i'm glad i'm glad we have that clear now you know like let's do something about it let's let, let's all sort of gather together and um and and sort of take hope and take action and i think that's a great place to leave it today. I've really enjoyed talking with you, Aaron. I've been talking with historian Aaron Sachs, author of the new book, Stay Cool, Why Dark Comedy Matters in the Fight Against Climate Change. Thank you so much for joining me today, Aaron. Thank you, Douglas. It was wonderful to be here. I really appreciate the time. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Shali Pittman. Thanks, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WRT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Book Beat. On today's show, David Ahrens talks with Catherine McGar about her new book, City of Newsmen, Public Lies and Professional Secrets in Cold War Washington. Send you merry go rounding by the KKK police the streets by bloodhounding. Interest on the credit card just keeps on compounding. But the FCC can never shut this pirate sound down. I'm indirect, we come and never pre recorded with information that will never be reported.